Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Hey, thanks for being with us here on the program. We're, uh, we're really looking forward to uh, this program today because it uh, traverses the globe today. Today's program takes us all the way. Well, we're going to find out how far away it takes us. And uh, we're going to be talking with a very special guest, the author of a book I think you're going to want to get your hands on, Hollywood to the Himalayas. It's a journey of healing and transformation, which is what this program is all about. And our special guest is uh, Satvi Bhagawati Saraswati. And I want to thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It's really wonderful to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm so happy to connect with you and with your whole community. And uh, through this interview, shall I refer to you just as uh, Satvi? Sadvi is perfect. Sadvi, okay, excellent. Well, now you've written this book, Hollywood to the Himalayas, uh, which seems like, um, from the Western perspective, a rather common occurrence. I mean, we, we take a look, for example, back in the 60s with the Beatles. They went all the way to India, you know, and studied and so forth. I myself, not living in Hollywood, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, but my metaphysical primer was Autobiography of a Yogi. Uh, and I've read it, you know, a hundred times or more in the last 40 or so years. Uh, and it seems as though a lot of folks, as they grow older and they start to realize that there's more to life than what they're experiencing, whether they're from Hollywood or uh, you know, some small town in the Midwest, uh, they start to do a search. Uh, the 60s phrase was, Mom, Dad, I'm not going to college. I'm going to go travel to wherever and try to find myself. This particular book that you have written, Hollywood to the Himalayas, is it sort of along those lines for you? Was that is that what that was about? Was you looking for sattvi or whatever your given name was, which we won't reveal here, but is that is that kind of what was happening? You know, in many ways, my ego would love to say it was, to be <laughs> able to put myself on par with the, the great seekers of the 60s, of the early 70s, who, as you said, came to India really looking for for something. But even though my ego would love to say that that was the story, it actually isn't the story. I had no idea that there was anything to look for. I was 25 and had grown up in Los Angeles, quite literally in Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills, just above Universal Studios. And had a life that was full of privilege, full of opportunity, a life that if you looked at it from the outside in, you would say, this girl's got everything. A fantastic you know, upbringing and family and education. I had graduated from Stanford undergraduate. I was in the midst of doing a PhD in psychology, I didn't know there was anything to look for. I was suffering on a lot of ways, some very standard ways, the general run of the mill, 
stress and restlessness of youth in America, as well as some very personal, unique traumas that I had been through. And if anyone had said to me, by the way, there is a possibility of you being completely free, I would have, I would have jumped on it, but no one did. What I was shown and taught both directly as well as from just people I knew in the world I inhabited was that the very best that we can hope to achieve is to learn how to manage our lives. So we can, we can manage our stress, we can manage depression, we can manage addiction, we can manage pain, we can manage difficult relationships, we can manage these things. Some people learn to manage them better than others, but that's really the, the best that one can get. And so the idea of being free, the idea of a spiritual awakening experience actually pertaining to someone like me, who not only wasn't religious, wasn't even spiritual, pertaining to someone like me who was just sort of a regular, you know, regular girl from LA, it never occurred to me. I agreed to go to India actually on this trip only because I was a very, very strict vegetarian and loved Indian food. And somewhere flying over Southeast Asia, I had this conversation with myself in which I said, this makes no sense. By that point, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area after having done undergraduate and doing my graduate work, where you can pretty much get really good Indian vegetarian food on kind of every corner. And so the fact that I was traveling across the world having agreed to go on this trip just because I liked the food, I didn't know anything about India. I didn't have any interest in it because I didn't know anything and because I wasn't on a spiritual quest. I was an academic. I was a scientist. And when we got here to India, after having taken a vow on the airplane, when I realized it made no sense, I I took a vow that has been just the greatest thing I ever did and the start of really everything else, the second half of my life. And the vow was that I would keep my heart because I realized it made no sense I was going. But I wasn't someone who did things that made no sense. I wasn't a wanderer. And so I thought, all right, there must be a reason you're going and you just don't know it. So I took a vow that I would keep my heart open. And that open heart led me from Delhi to Rishikesh, in Rishikesh to a hotel that at that time was the only hotel in the area where the ashram Parmarth Nikathan that I now live in, where it was, that led me down to the banks of Ganga, that 
enabled me to have this incredible experience of awakening, of transformation, as I stood there on the banks of this sacred river that I didn't even know was sacred. To me, it was just a river. I didn't even know the Ganga, the Ganges was sacred. I didn't know the Himalayas were sacred. I just knew they were mountains. And there I was standing on the banks of this river worshiped as the mother goddess. And I had this incredible experience of oneness with the divine, of an experience of the divine, of the presence of the divine that was outside of me, all around me, and also inside of me. And after that, that knocked me to the ground in tears of, of truth, over the next week or so, I had this series of experiences. Because my heart was open, it made me know, oh, this is where I'm meant to be. Experiences like hearing a voice that said, you must stay here. Experiences like literally getting my feet glued to the ground of the ashram and I couldn't walk out. So that, that open-heartedness was really what enabled the rest of it to, to happen. But yeah, I had no idea this was coming. I was not in search of sadhvi. I was in search of good vegetarian food, quite frankly. And God and grace and the universe just showered upon me in the most exquisite and amazing way. And it's made me realize that that's available for everyone. Because so many people think, oh, in order to be worthy, I have to do this, do that, you know, do this much meditation or recite this many Hail Marys or stand on my leg for this amount of time. <laughs> and, I, I, was, I was sort of the poster child of grace doesn't discriminate. Mm. You, can, you can not even know consciously you're looking for it as long as your heart's open. Mm. Grace is there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to ask you, uh, I've, I've got a lot of questions that uh, I don't even know what they are yet because the universe hasn't given them to me yet. But one of them that has come... That's the way this program works. The universe asks the questions. I'm just along for the ride. Uh, now, most people are totally unaware of this. Only those who are watching the YouTube video of this interview at the Tell Me Your Stories channel know that you have what is called a bindi on your forehead over your third eye, correct? Yes. Can you, and again, this is the universe asking this question, all right? Please explain to us the significance of the bindi in the tradition and the philosophy that you follow and that you live in today. Beautiful. Yes. So you can call it bindi, you can call it ilak. It's got a very beautiful meaning. So most people think we only have two eyes. Mm-hmm. 
we use these two eyes to navigate the world and they're fantastic at it. But if you study a little bit about the science of how the eyes work, what you know is that they function based on angles. What we're getting from this eye and what we're getting from that eye come together and give our brain a perception of depth of field, of where things are in space. Our two eyes are able to see color, movement, light, form. But in order to be able to see, things have to be kind of at least an arm's length away. Even if you don't yet need glasses, if you stick something right up in your face like this, mm -hmm. it's going to become blurry. Mm -hmm. Now, that's fine as long as we are looking at something that is separate from us. As long as we are driving a car and needing to see where to turn it. As long as we are navigating our way through a room or looking at a flower or looking at a tree or looking at another person a few feet from us. But as far as seeing content rather than form, as far as seeing essence or truth, these two eyes can't do that. In fact, that's why, you know, when we meditate, we so frequently close our eyes. Or in traditions where we don't close them, we allow ourselves just to focus on a, you know, on a spot kind of right in front of us a few feet, everything blurs, or we look at a candle flame. But the point is we are not watching things move in our world. Mm -hmm. The reason that what we need to see is actually that which is not separate from us. It's actually the truth of who we are. It's actually divinity. It's consciousness. It's soul. It's spirit. It's love. And those two things cannot be seen by these eyes. But we also have a third eye. And that's what the bindi or tilak is there to acknowledge and celebrate, is this eye, what's called the agya chakra. Chakras are, are our energy centers that exist in our energetic body. And there's an energy center, a chakra, that's right here. And it's called the agya chakra. And it's the energy center of the power of discrimination, meaning truth from untruth, not the discrimination like dark or white or fat or thin, but discrimination of truth from untruth. Mm. And so we put the tila or the bindi there as a way of saying to God, to the universe, to our higher self, Please today, let me use not only my two eyes, not only those eyes that see things as separate from me, not only these eyes that make me angry or greedy or lustful or jealous, but let me use this eye that actually sees the divine in all, that sees content rather than just form, that sees essence rather than packaging, 
that sees myself, my capital S self, in all. I have also read, or I've been made aware that in reference to the third eye, there are actually five in, uh, in, in that forehead area that work their way up from the third eye and so forth. So in actuality, we have seven eyes, the two visual eyes that we have, and then five others uh, that, that work their way up toward the crown chakra. Are you, I would take it you're familiar with that? There are, I am familiar with that. There are a lot of different schools between the Hindu and the Buddhist and other, other Eastern traditions that work with energy bodies that speak about different numbers of chakras. So some people all included say seven, some people all inclusive say nine. I've heard people all inclusive say 10. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of different schools of that. Yeah. And me, really, what matters the most is not so much the, the esoteric philosophies as far as the academics of it, mm -hmm. but rather that which impacts us and how can we implement it in our lives so if it helps you to think of five additional eyes great if it's just as helpful to think of one great if you'd like to think of you know the entire experience as an eye that's also great because what we know is that all of these centers they're not isolated from each other they're not separate. They're not separate from us. It's all energy. And it's all just different places where energy tends to get blocked and where the blockages of energy lead to suffering. And when we can free those blockages, then we alleviate the suffering. We alleviate the ignorance. We're actually able to see. We're able to love. We're able to be grounded and anchored. We're able to be connected. There's, there's, you know, different meditations for each, each chakra. We just finished the beautiful holiday of Navaratri, which is a sacred nine days dedicated to the mother goddess. Mm. And each, each manifestation of the mother goddess who celebrated on each of the nine days actually has a different energy center associated with her. And so we do a different meditation on each night to open those, those energy centers. Mm. I want to ask you about something that we promote a great deal on this program. Every program we talk about, the decade of perfect vision. Now it started out a year ago, actually November, uh, September of 2019, with promoting the year of perfect vision, 2020. And at the end of that year, we shifted it to the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, where we encourage people to go within, to find that quiet, 
peaceful, calm, still place and listen to that still, small voice. I would like for you, if you could please, uh, to share with us your perspective, your understanding, your awareness, your experience of that still small voice in your inner life and how important that is. Uh, and I hate putting it in this context, in this day and age, because it doesn't matter what day or age we're in. It seems to me it's, it's like in the top five, the top ten, maybe the number one thing that we should be doing. And in many cultures and civilizations, not only present day, but down through history, they say, no, no, just trust this guy or that guy or the other guy. He'll tell you, she'll tell you which way you should go and so forth. But it seems like it's becoming more important. Absolutely. And whether we call it intuition, mm -hmm. whether we call it a sixth sense, whether we call it a divine voice or our higher self, whatever we call it, that is our way of knowing. And if we don't listen to it, then we actually have no idea how to live. And this is one of the great tragedies that's afflicting people, not just today, but forever. But I think it's, I think it's getting more acute now mm -hmm. because there are so many conflicting, conflicting voices trying to tell us who we are and what we should be doing that I think it's easier to get confused oh, yes. about it than perhaps it used to be. And so if we don't know who we are, we cannot know what to do. And a lot of people, tragically, go about it in the opposite way. So we begin our lives by just doing. And we do based on what maybe our parents told us, maybe our culture or society told us, maybe the influencers we follow on social media tell us, and we just start doing. And then we identify as the doer. So let's say that I've got a family full of doctors who have pressured me since my childhood to become a doctor. So I become a doctor. Then suddenly my identity becomes, I'm a doctor. Now, that's not who I am. And later in life, if I find myself a miserable doctor, because actually I wanted to be a musician or I wanted to be an artist or I wanted to be a school teacher or I wanted to be a monastic renunciant or I wanted to be an astronaut. I'm going to not only be frustrated that I'm in the wrong profession, but I'm going to really deeply suffer because if who I am is a doctor, then how can I possibly do something else? And this is where we get so many people coming from all over the world with these dilemmas of, I don't know what to do. Should I do this or should I do that? And what I tell everyone is the question is not what you should do. The question is, who are you? Mm -hmm. And when you know who you are, because 
There's no equation to know what to do. There's no right answer. We all come into this world with different, different dharmas. And of course, even during our lifetime, we fulfill different dharmas, different purposes, different roles, different responsibilities. We have different passions, different callings. There's no, no equation for it. But what's essential is that I know who I am. Because then I'm going to know what to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that choosing my career is going to be that much easier because maybe for me, the career is just going to be a way to put food on the table while I be an artist or I be a musician. But that inner voice, that intuition, that divine voice is what tells us who we are mm -hmm. and tells us, helps us know what direction to walk and it gives us the courage i always say there's three things we need really badly today much more than any more people of any particular profession we need people who are connected courageous and creative and it goes in that order when i'm connected deeply connected the core of who i am to myself then I automatically have courage to speak, to do, to live, because I'm connected, I'm anchored. I can hear that voice, or for some people, by the way, that small voice isn't a voice at all. It's more of an instinct, mm. more of just feeling. You know, we use the word voice, but I think it's important to make it clear it's not always a voice. I mean, does a caterpillar hear a voice to climb a tree and weave a cocoon? I don't know. But it gets a signal in some way. It knows in some way. And so for some of us, it is a voice. But for some of us, it's just a knowing. Some people hear it in the brain. Others feel it in the heart, feel it in the gut. But that, then, is what gives me the courage. And then from the courage, I have the creativity to figure out, okay, how to now live according to what my intuition, inner self is telling me. And for me on a personal level, that was such a, a profound experience because before coming to India, I didn't trust. I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust the universe. I was very much a doer and then an identifier as the doer. So I am a straight A student. <laughs> I am this. I, and that was the whole identity as well as the not so much fun identity as the victim of survivor of the trauma that I had experienced. And it was only once I came here and had this incredible experience standing on the banks of the sacred river that I was able to, what I call trust fall into the universe. You know, we do these trust falls in, in school or in corporate retreats where you fall backwards and somebody catches you. And so many times the person behind us, 
is a stranger. We had never met them before the retreat. Or maybe they were an enemy or a competitor. And yet we always fall back because we know they're going to catch us. Mm. And if we can trust fall into the arms of a stranger, the arms of an enemy, the arms of a competitor, can't we trust fall into the arms of this incredible universe? And that was something that I was that I was given when I had this experience of experiencing the divine, because I realized, ah, it's perfect. And I, I am part of that perfection. So I started trusting myself. It was a fall into my higher self, you could say, so that then when I heard the voice, when my feet got glued, when I was told to go into the river and just give my pain, that inner voice, that inner knowing that for me was brand new, it was a week old, but it was so strong. It was able to guide me and to give me the courage and then to give me the creativity of actually how to live this life. You touch upon something else that I think we need to discuss here on the program, and that has to do with this issue of getting to know the true self, the real self, the person that or maybe not so much the person, but the essence that inhabits the body, uh, that is who we really are. I want to talk to you about this aspect of who we really are. And in in the light of something that I have just completed, I, I can now add to my resume songwriter because I've written all of one song. <laughs> but <clears throat> the title of the song is, I'm a Good Man. And I'm doing the best I can, which is kind of how the lyrics go. And when I start taking a look at who I really am, and not just the light and the shadow side that is based upon the experiences of my life, but more so what? The divine connected self, the spirit the essence that animates this body, isn't it part of our growth, our transformation, our raising of our consciousness, that we get to know who we really are? And can you give us any guidance in that regard? What are some of the first steps that we can take? And it might be, I've even made this comment, it might be a little scary sometimes, because you are going to be looking into the to the shadows there of who you really are. But that's that's all of that is what makes us makes me who I am. And I can't I can't ignore or remove any of those parts. Can you can you elucidate on that? Sure. Well, there's there's two different pieces here, and I think it would be helpful to begin by thinking about it as Imagine a wave on the ocean. Now, if you're looking at that wave, you say, what is that? Well, 
you could say that's a wave and that would be true it's not not a lie it's not false it's not an optical illusion there is a wave or you could say that is ocean now a wave is true but it's true in a very limited capacity in this exact intersection of time and space exact moment that wave exists mm -hmm. but it's in a state of constant change even as a wave it's constantly changing the molecules of water that make it up are constantly changing its size its shape its velocity constantly changing so the highest truth of what is that is ocean and if you took a spoonful or a dropperful or a cupful of the wave and you gave it to a scientist who looked at it under a microscope the scientist would not say wave the scientist would say this is ocean so in terms of who we are let us look at both the wave and the ocean because too many people when they get on a spiritual path especially an eastern spiritual path mm -hmm say, oh, well, the wave is just an illusion. This body, this life, it's all just an illusion. Mm -hmm. As though somehow we're talking about a mirage off in the, in the desert. Yeah, as the Hindus well, say, Maya. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. But Maya is much more subtle than people understand it. And so what you get is a lot of people simply saying, oh, this is all an illusion. Well, on the one hand, you could say the wave is an illusion in terms of the infinite nature of the ocean. In the form of the wave, it's still ocean. So its waveness, you could say, is illusory because ultimately it always was ocean. It still is ocean. It always will be ocean. And yet, the wave is not an optical illusion. It's not not there. And if you doubt that, just go out and try to swim in it if you don't know how to swim or grab yourself a surfboard if you don't know how to surf and you're gonna find yourself flat on the sand, under the water with a mouthful of sand, a mouthful of water, <laughs> gasping for your life. So the wave, even though it's not the highest truth, it still exists. Mm -hmm. It can still drown you or give you a good time if you're a surfer. And so when you ask who we are, let's look on both levels because when you spoke about the shadows, that's more an aspect of the waveness. So the core truth of who we are, the oceanness of each of us, mm. is something that has been called many names. You can use the word divinity, you can say soul, you can say spirit, you can say God, you can say consciousness, you can say infinity, you can say love. Mm -hmm. You can say, say a lot of different words that are pointing at this same truth, which is that that is not dependent upon the constant changing nature of the physical body. And there's a very, very beautiful meditation to get in touch with that. 
And it's a meditation called Niti Niti. And what you do in the meditation is that's actually very simple. It's not a religious experience. I mean, it's not a religious meditation. People mm -hmm. of any religion or any walk of life or no religion can do it. Atheists can do it. It doesn't matter. The meditation says you sit and you close your eyes. And in my case, I would begin with, I am not this shawl. I am not my sarni. Okay, we know that we change our clothes, but who we are is still there. And you say, I am not the skin beneath my clothes. Okay, we know that our skin cells are constantly sloughing off and regenerating. Then I am not the blood flowing beneath my skin. Yeah, we know that because our blood cells are also regenerating and because we sometimes donate blood or receive blood transfusions or you, you know, fall and cut yourself and you lose blood. But who you are doesn't change. You're not less of yourself when you give a blood donation. You don't become someone else when you get a blood transfusion. So I'm not my blood. I'm not my organs. Organs, people get removed, people live with one kidney, get parts of their liver cut off, get all sorts of different organs removed. We also know that the cells of the organ regenerates every seven, eight, nine years. So I, who have been continuous my whole life, cannot possibly exist in something that is constantly changing. And then we go a bit more subtle and we say, I am not my thoughts. Well, and that takes a moment for people, but it helps when we realize that our thoughts are actually just chemical and electrical reactions. They're patterns of energy that take place in the gray and white matter of our brain. That's all thoughts are. It's also all emotions are. It's all feelings are. So clearly I am not my neuron. I'm not the myelin sheath covering the axon. I'm not the neurotransmitter sitting in a vesicle at the end of the axon. I'm not the electrical axon potential that goes down and makes the chemical get secreted into the synapse. I'm not that. So I'm not my thoughts. And you slowly, slowly go through, I am not this, not my history, because the body keeps changing. Everything is changing. If, if I say to you, I was abused as a child, well, the question is, who's that I? There's not one cell of my being today that was ever abused. So who, who was that? And that's when we finally realize I'm not any of this. And when you do it in a very meditative way, in a way where you're really checking in and knowing and acknowledging that you're not those things, then you enter an experience which the Hindus call everythingness and the Buddhists call nothingness. But they're both basically talking about the same space. 
Um, it's that space that exists when you peel the layers of the onion back, finally, you know, you keep peeling and peeling and peeling and peeling. Or the way I like to think about it is <clears throat> you've got a glass jar of air and then your glass jar breaks. So what do you have? Well, on the one hand, you could say, I've got nothing. Like I used to have a glass jar of air and now I don't even have that. I have nothing. But you could also say, I have everything because what broke was just that which separated the air in my glass jar from the air around my glass jar. So that nothingness and everythingness, it's the same space. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that space is where the experience of the truth of who we are arises. And it's, it's not a semantic experience. It's not an intellectual experience. It's not a verbal experience. It's just an experience and knowing. Mm. I want so that. I beg your pardon. Yeah. <clears throat> Go I was going to say that's emotionness, mm -hmm. but the waveness is this individual being. And I mention it just because you were speaking about looking into the shadows. And of course, the ocean doesn't have shadows, mm -mm. but the wave does. Mm. And that's where, that's where it's important to understand that the wave exists, the, to understand that we exist, that we're here in this beautiful human incarnation with our experiences with our challenges, all of which are opportunities for us to open. Mm. And so we look into the shadows so that there isn't a part of us that is left uncovered. Because as long as there's some part of me that I don't want to look at, it implies that there's a part of me that is bad or wrong or dark or dirty or problematic in some way. Mm -hmm. And so we look at all of us with the eyes that say who you are at the core is divine. And yeah, you've got this human package and the best, best thing you can do for that is a lot of compassion a lot of love, a lot of truth, and a lot of lightness. People tend to take themselves really seriously and really heavily. And for me, I have I've developed what I call a very bearable lightness of being. That the ego arises, desire arises, fear arises, anger arises, some past pattern arises. And it's a matter of, oh, how interesting. You know, I wasn't expecting you for tea today, but all right, you've arrived. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, I've actually got kind of a packed schedule today, so I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time with you. But thanks for dropping by. If you've got, you know, something important to let me know, I'm here to hear it. But I'm not going to let you take over my whole day. And just a kind of an acknowledgement with lightness 
of the very beautiful humanness of our experience. I want to ask you, uh, because we are so short on time here, uh, I want to ask you, uh, certainly the book, uh, Hollywood to Himalaya, to the Himalayas, it's pretty self-explanatory, going from Hollywood, uh, five, six, I don't know how many thousands of miles it is, to the Himalayas. Uh, that's that's pretty obvious, but it's the aspect of the healing and the transformation. And I want to ask you about that, but in this, in this context, as a Reiki master myself, I was taught that when I become the conduit of the energy that I am giving, or uh, if you will, to, uh, or allowing to flow through me to this other person who has asked for it, or an absentee healing. I am not sending that energy with any intent other than to send the energy to allow that individual to use it as they will. So it gets me thinking about that word healing and what it really is. My father's brother was, was uh, diagnosed with cancer. My wife and I sent him an absentee healing. A week or two later, he passed. And I was told what exactly had happened before his passing. Certain things happened and he was energized to do this, that, and the other thing. And then he passed. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. We send in this absentee healing. What happened? So the definition of healing seems to me to be in question here. So from your perspective, what is, what is healing? Beautiful, beautiful question. So the healing and transformation in the subtitle of Hollywood to the Himalayas is my healing and my transformation. It was for me healing from the pain and the trauma of what I had experienced, healing from the ways that I had chosen to try to deal with that pain that were very well-intentioned, but very ineffective in the way that so many people, when we turn to alcohol or drugs or food or gambling or sex or shopping to ease our inner pain, it's well-intentioned. It's just not very effective or helpful. And so for me, the healing and the transformation was what I experienced in India of being able to heal from the pain, from the trauma, from the way that I had been dealing with it, and to be transformed into an awareness of who I really am. And so that's the healing and it came for me actually quite quite quickly my my spiritual teacher my guru he wasn't my guru at the time i had just met him but he's this great great saint great master revered throughout india and across the world had told me on about my third or fourth day there that he wanted me to go stand in the river and offer all of my pain, all of my anger into the river. And of course I thought there is no way this is gonna work. Like things like this just don't happen. Mm -hmm. But it did. And it worked because as I go back to those three C's I had spoken about earlier in terms of 
connected, courageous, and creative is that I had gotten to a place where I was so connected to that experience of divinity, of peace, of love, of truth within me. But I actually had the courage to, to do it sincerely. I didn't think it would work, but to do it sincerely. And I stood in that river for God knows how long. And I pulled up every memory, every bit of pain, every bit of grief. And I offered it into this, these flowing waters. And I certainly didn't think it would be gone, but it was. Mm. And the transformation was a transformation. Now, I, I need to give you a little caveat there, which was I had done a lot of psychological work prior to this. It was not like I arrived as an incredibly traumatized mm -hmm. person just dumped it into the river. Prior to coming to India, I had done lots and lots of psychological work. I had been in a lot of therapy, done all of that. But that was where, as I said in the beginning, I had gotten to a point of being able to manage my life. It was not healing or free. It was just managing. It was managing the pain and managing my maladaptive ways of dealing with the pain, but it wasn't free. And when I gave it to the river, I actually became free. And the transformation was from an identity of the one who had experienced these traumas, the one who suffered, to being one with the divine, the one who was whole and full and complete. And yeah, trauma had happened, but it no, it no longer had the, had the grip on me. And so when you speak about healing, though, in a, in a general level, we remember that we didn't take birth to live as many days as possible. There's no spiritual tradition I know of that says that the mark of a successful life is how many cumulative days you can string together. <laughs> but actually, it's about your own, your awakening, your love, your service, your truth, how much of an instrument, like St. Francis of Assisi says, oh Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. How much of an instrument can you be? Mm. And so when we send healing or pray for healing, we have to remember that there are laws of nature that exist. You know, I mean, you can jump off a building and pray to be able to fly all you want, but you are going to plummet to the ground because there's this thing called the law of gravity. And in the same way, there are, there are laws of nature that do all kinds of things with the very matter of our bodies. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you real quickly here, because you've already mm -hmm. alluded to this earlier in the program. And so I want you to um, uh, clarify for us. On the one hand, you've shared with us uh, wonderful experiences in that regard to healing. 
But on the other hand, we said you said earlier, I am not my skin, I'm not my bones, I'm not my blood, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not any of those things. So in in one in a manner of speaking, what is there to be healed of? Beautiful. Be healed of, and that's that's exactly the transformation, is healed of the addiction to, attachment to, identifying as the body, as the thoughts. And that's actually where the Hollywood to the Himalayas on the deeper level, Mm -hmm. you know, one, as you mentioned, is, of course, the plot of... 25-year-old white Jewish Stanford grad <laughs> arrives with a backpack, has a transformation, and ends up, you know, still there 25 years later as a spiritual leader and teacher and server of humanity, etc. But there's the there's the other level, which is something that is available for everyone, regardless of where they live, mm. which is the change of our thought and our mindset from what I call the Hollywood way of thinking, which is you are your body, its size, its shape, its color, its career, its relationships, how much money it makes, to the Himalayan way of thinking, which says you have a body, but you're not the body. And that for me was the healing of realizing, oh yeah, this stuff happened. Never should have happened, was wrong that it happened. Horrible that it happened. And I am not the one it happened to. But I'm identified, I'm addicted to the identification Mm. as the one it happened to. I'm addicted to my patterns of thoughts that say, I was abused, I was abandoned, I am... I'm addicted to that. Not in any conscious way. I certainly didn't know that. But in retrospect, I look at it and realize that's what was going on. We are we are attached to these identities. So it's it's yes and. Yeah, I get you. You know, yeah. that that is the healing. That is the transformation, which is why those practices of nathy nathy meditation are. Other practices to experience the expansiveness of the self are so healing for us on the level that mostly needs that, which is the level of the mind, the heart, to be able to recognize and understand and accept the actual truth of who we are. Sadviji, I want to thank you for giving us so much time. It has just been such a blessing to to be with you uh, and to share uh, the thoughts that you have with us. I do have three final questions that I'd like to ask you. You may have addressed them during the program, uh, during the interview and our conversation, but I'd like to ask them directly. Um, and um, again, I really do appreciate what you've had to share with us, and it has helped to clarify even for me, a, a one-time songwriter and uh, a one who is seeking uh, the truth about self. I'm not interested in truth about you or anybody else. I'm trying to figure out who I am because if I can figure out who I am, guess what? I have a better understanding of who you and, and everybody else is. That, that seems to me to be sort of the path that, that 
we're all on in a, in a manner of speaking, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the first three, the first of those three questions that I, I put to people, and uh, I'm going to use what I have here available to me. The first of those three questions is, <clears throat> and I'm going to bring this up right in front of me here. Who is Satvi Bhagwati Saraswati? A transmitter of love and peace as an open and empty channel for the divine to flow through. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? To alleviate as much suffering as possible on every level. So if people are hungry, we want to feed them. If they are ill and they don't have access to medical care, we give it to them. If they don't have access to schools or training or skills, we give it to them. If they don't have access to clean water, we want to, them to have it and we give it to them. But also a lot of people have a roof over their head, plenty to eat, lots of education, lots of bottles of water or water filters or clean water from their tap, but their hearts are empty. They're suffering on an internal level. Mm. And so for them, through the work, through the teaching, through the writing, to help them heal from that suffering, to realize the inherent fullness and completeness and fullness and beauty and worthiness of everyone. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Ah, I already answered that in the first question. For me there, it, it's both. Um, my life's purpose really is, you know, I'll, I'll tell you quickly the story of how I, how I realized this. It was many years ago when I was in the Seoul, South Korea airport. And I had just completed a couple days at this enormous gathering in a stadium full of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. It was this massive religious, interreligious event. And I had been one of the leaders and speakers at it. And I was flying from Seoul to New York City where I was going to be speaking at the United Nations. And on the way in New Jersey, I was going to be giving a, a cozy, you know, meditation and satsang program, a spiritual question and answer program. And I'm walking through the airport. And as I mentioned, I take myself pretty lightly. And I had this kind of laugh with myself and with God, where I was, I said to God, I said, this is so funny. I said, who, who am I? And what have you done with me? Like, here I am at this type of program. Here I am at the United Nations. Here I am teaching this. And yet here I am just feeling like this, you know, 
small being who just loves God and is trying to serve. But, but how funny you are, I was telling God, that you've got me playing all of these different roles. Mm. And I realized in that very moment that, oh, who I am, my, my job description, Literally, my life job description is not about speaker at this conference or United Nations this or meditation teacher or satsang giver, but my, my job description was spreader of love and peace. Mm. And whatever form that takes in that moment, that's what my life purpose is, is how can I bring love and peace to every moment? And the only way to do that is for me, my ego, my identity, my sense of self, the small S self, to get that out of the way so that the divine can just flow through me. HollywoodToTheHimalayas.com is the website, and you have a lot of different organizations that you're involved with, and I'd love to have you come back to talk about the work that you are doing that is important, that does help people, not just there in India, but around the world. And I'm hoping that, uh, that you will join us again. Absolutely. It's been wonderful to be together. And I thank you again for joining us. And I thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, as we're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And if I, I don't want to be remiss here, I want to address... Um, uh, Satviji's staff and say thank you for staying up so late in Rishikesh this evening as it is there uh, for uh, this interview. I greatly appreciate the work that you are doing and many, many blessings to you and to you, the listener and the viewer, until our next broadcast podcast videocast. Love to Lal.